Please turn with me, if you're able, uh, to Hebrews chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can flip open to the second page of the bulletin, and it's printed there for you. Two weeks ago, we looked at Hebrews 1, and this is the second piece of the kind of brief introduction to Hebrews. Um, had two weeks pretty much back to back with one week in between, so decided to do a two-part series here. So let's read God's word. This is God's word to us, to you, from Hebrews 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open your word to us this morning, that we would not just read it or hear it, but that you would work it into our hearts. God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts this morning be pleasing in your sight. O oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Pay attention. That's the phrase that the National Geographic TV show Brain Games uses to alert you that you're about to play a game. It's a TV show that talks about the brain. And you have to pay attention to the game. Your attention is going to be tested. In one of the games, they have this setup where they've got a bunch of dancers on a stage, and you have to count how many times the dancers walk into the spotlight. Well, if you've never seen a scenario like this before, you're probably going to miss that halfway through the dance, a person in a penguin suit walks across the stage in the background. If you haven't seen a scenario like this before, you just completely miss it. So when they say pay attention, sometimes they want you to pay attention to other things than just the main focus. It's an inherent weakness in our physiology that we are not good at keeping focus on any one thing. As you go through your day, figuring out problems, making grocery lists, or trying to figure out how you're going to deal with that one person, all of these things take focus and we lose sight of the bigger picture of what's going on in the background. And that's why Hebrews 2 starts out by saying, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. It's easy for us to lose sight of the great salvation of God. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first chapter of Hebrews, and one of the main themes that we saw in that chapter was the exaltation, the greatness of Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is better, is what Hebrews is all about. And because Jesus is better, we need to pay attention to what God has done through Jesus. Well, if we've seen how important Jesus' exaltation is, this week we're going to see how important his humiliation is. His subjection to suffering is for us as well. Because if you've really seen the beauty and awesomeness in God's salvation and have neglected to wholeheartedly trust in it, what other hope do we have? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So today we're going to look at Hebrews 2 in three points. First, setting the scene, we'll look at the contrast between the subjection to supremacy, from Jesus' subjection to his supremacy. Second, we'll see the sanctification that comes through suffering. And third, we'll see the great salvation that God has brought that is founded in suffering. Through our sufferings, God draws us close to himself, teaching us how great a salvation and a savior that we have and sanctifies us, making us perfect as a reflection of Jesus, our Savior. So let's look at the first point from subjection to supremacy. We'll come back to <clears throat> the first couple of verses in a minute, but I want to start off by taking time to see the contrast between chapter 1 and chapter 2 in Hebrews. In chapter 1, we saw the greatness, the exalted nature of Christ, how he was the ultimate word, the ultimate God-man, the ultimate savior. But here we see one who is subjected to suffering. In chapter two, we see that he is exalted now, yes, sitting in victory now, 
But for a little while, he was made lower, humbled, subjected by becoming a man. Verses five through eight are an excerpt from Psalm 8, marveling at the creation of man. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And we see that Christ is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. He is the one that can rule. We, we can't see creation, the things that God has made subjected to the wickedness of man, the fallenness of man. It doesn't fit, but Jesus, Jesus is fitting to be the ruler, to be the perfect God-man. However, even though Jesus's humiliation allowed him to be a benevolent ruler, it didn't negate the suffering that Jesus had to go through. And more than that, his victory was not obtained in spite of suffering, but through it. Verse 9 says that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That phrase, the suffering of death, is a, is a picture of all the pain and misery, the oppression and the, the weight of sin that Jesus had to live through throughout his life. Jesus carried out his daily ministry under this weight, under the crushing weight of the sorrow of the curse of sin. But he did that so that he could taste death on our behalf. He could taste the bitterness of death instead of you and me. Jesus's subjection to misery was intentional. It was purposeful so that he could take the sting of death away from us. His subjection was purposeful and it was also temporary. We now see him who is for a little while made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. And though we do not yet see all things in subjection to him or in obedience to him, we know that nothing is outside of the control of the one who took the sting of death for you. If he was willing to subject himself to such miseries and taste death on your behalf, how will he not give you all that is good and necessary? Therefore, since we have this glorious and exalted Savior, how in the world do we drift away from him? How do we turn again to our own imaginations where we are the hero, turn to an idea where we can save ourselves. Or on the other hand, isn't it enough that we believe in Jesus once and our hearts remain steadfast forever? Alas, neither is the case. We are neither our own savior, nor do we do a good job remembering who our savior truly is. Yet God knows our weakness and he knows that we need to be reminded again and again of the good news of salvation. Jesus came to be our glorious savior. Verses two and three point out how foolish it would be to ignore or neglect this salvation. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What is this referring to? What's the message of the angels? 
We see elsewhere in scripture, Acts 7 and Galatians 3, that this message was the law that God had given Mount Sinai. The angels were there as part of God's court as his throne kind of descended on Mount Sinai. And the angels were part of that delivering the law of God to Israel. And the point isn't that the angels were somehow inferior and so the law was inferior. No, the law and the gospel both are given by God. They're both authored by God. However, the angels were not worthy to impart the message of salvation because it had to be delivered by the God-man, the Messiah himself. And while Israel ignored or neglected the law of God, they fell under the curse of the law, curses that had real and severe consequences. If they had neglected the lesser revelation of God and received due punishment, what should we expect if we neglect the greater revelation of salvation in Christ? If someone came and offered you $100 million to proofread the book that they were writing, you'd be a fool not to take the offer, right? You'd be a fool not to do your very best in order to catch every single mistake. And you might even go out and study up on your English grammar just so you make sure that you can get paid, so you can catch all all the mistakes, so you get the money. Sure, it would take focus and attention, but it would be worth it. It would be valuable. And while money has some value for this life, what is even more valuable is this salvation. And the consequences of ignoring or neglecting this salvation are immeasurable. Yet God knows our frame. He knows that we are quickly distracted. And so even the way that Jesus descends, even the way that he was subjected to suffering is part of how God draws us back to him and helps us pay closer attention to what he has done. We are drawn into God's divine love. And through that, we have a desire. We want to know more and more of who he is. And so that brings us to point two, sanctification through suffering. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. It says, for for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. There's a little bit to unpack here. It's uh, not abundantly clear who's doing the sanctifying, who's being sanctified, all the actors at play here. But to start, this section is focused on the why. Why did Jesus have to be subjected to suffering? What was the purpose of Jesus' humiliation? Well, as it says, it was fitting, it was good that God the Father should make the Son, the founder of our salvation, perfect through suffering. In other words, it was God's design that Jesus should go through suffering to be the perfect Savior. Now, does this mean that in some way Jesus was lacking or that Jesus was imperfect? No, not at all. However, it is true that Jesus actually accomplished and actually became the one who is perfectly molded to sinners such as us. Jesus was made perfect 
the perfect savior of sinners through the suffering that he endured. Hebrews later says that we can put our trust in Jesus and hold fast to him because he is the high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows our suffering. He knows that we need a savior who is full of mercy and abounding in grace. And through this kind of savior, we not only have someone who can sympathize us, but he, he bought us, he purchased us. He made us a part of his family. Verse 11 and following continues, that is why he was not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. These quotations are from the Psalms and Isaiah, and they capture the, the corporate nature of the worship of God. The Israelites were brothers, literally, but they also shared a brotherhood as a covenant family. When the people were gathered together, they were the children of God, sons of Abraham, sons of the promise. And now the fulfillment of the promise has come to gather the children. He is our older brother, Christ who unites us together in his suffering. He is the founder of our salvation and the perfecter of our faith. And through him, we are sanctified. Sanctification is the process of being made holy, being made obedient. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. That's a fine definition. It's a good definition. But while we need to be holy, that isn't really the focus. That's not the end goal. Living righteously is at its core a byproduct of something greater. Ed Welch, who is a prolific author in the world of biblical counseling, says this about sanctification. Jesus died to draw us near to God. And our obedience serves that, that close, closeness. From this perspective, sin and any form of uncleanness distances us from God. Holiness or sanctification brings us closer. Think of the Old Testament tabernacle. The unclean, which included the foreign nations and those contaminated by sins of others, were farthest from the place of God's presence in the most holy place. The clean were closer. They camped around God's house and could freely come near to worship and offer sacrifices. The priests, however, the ones made holy, were closer still. They were invited daily in turn into the holy place. And once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest dared to enter the most holy place. The high priest offers a picture of humanity as God intended, purified and close to him. Our progression of sanctification is really a progression of closeness to God. He is drawing us closer to himself through suffering. Just as Jesus was made the perfect savior through his suffering, made close to us in our weakness, our suffering sanctifies and draws us closer to God in his holiness. Many of us are going through some of the worst things that we've ever experienced. Some are dealing with illness. 
Some are struggling through broken relationships. Some are feeling the weight of the world on their shoulders without any hope in sight. God is with you. God is using your suffering to draw you closer to him. Maybe he's removing every other support in your life so that you are left relying entirely on him. Through it all, he's sanctifying you. He's drawing you closer and closer into his presence. There in the darkest of valleys, the only way to look is to look directly into his glory. If Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother, do not be ashamed to share in his sufferings. That brings us to point three, salvation through suffering. What kind of salvation comes through Christ's suffering? What is the effect that it has on the nature of salvation? Well, I think that what we see is that this salvation absolutely destroys death and it covers the whole cost of sin and it gives us a savior who is able to help us. These three subpoints, real quick, we'll, we'll look at them. So first, how it absolutely destroys death. Verse 14 and 15 says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. A huge part of why Jesus had to come in the flesh was that so he could die. And through his death, he would demolish the pow power of the curse. We see this curse in Genesis 2, when God laid out the danger of sin. He said, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the power of the devil is to deceive, is to come along and tempt and twist God's words and deceive man. Death and the devil were from then on, from the fall on, the powers that govern mankind. They were the slave masters that crushed man until all his life was gone, till his tortured soul was claimed forever by eternal death. Jesus faced the schemes of the devil and he did not yield. Jesus faced the suffering of the curse and he did not yield. Jesus walked into the pit of death itself and still he did not yield. He faced our enemy and tore it apart. Theologians have sometimes tried to come up with uh, ideas of salvation that wouldn't have to involve Jesus' suffering. But Hebrews makes it clear there is no other possible way. There is no other plan of salvation that the one, than the one where God the Son came and partook, shared in our flesh and blood so that through death, he might destroy death. Jesus also suffered so that he might pay the whole price for sin, so that he could cover the cost. Verse 17 says that he had to be made like his brother in, brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. One of the mysterious facets of salvation is how God counts 
Jesus' propitiation, Jesus' payment as payment for our sin. It's amazing. It's mysterious. Because of our sin, we owed a great debt and we could not, that we could not pay. Under the curse of sin, the idea of retaliation or retribution was enacted. This idea that a wrong deserves to be righted. There always must be payment for sin. There always must be justice done. The problem with our human twisting of things is that we want to make retribution for ourselves. We want to take it into our own hands. When someone does something unjust to us, we want to give out justice. But if we are truly justice-oriented, we would condemn ourselves first. Don't get me wrong. When you are in the middle of an unjust situation where you have been criticized, demeaned, or dehumanized, you have the right to feel the need for justice. Some of my deepest struggles and times of suffering have been when others have fairly, unfairly criticized me or said things about me that were not based in truth. And I've cried out to God, begging him to bring truth to light so that justice may be done. Whether the attacker is one person acting out of hate or a whole nation fighting to subdue another, we desperately need God's justice. We need relief from our suffering. We need to know that God's justice will make all things right. The mighty who crush others under their cruelty will be crushed by God's righteous justice. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian Protestant theologian who wrote a really important book on this subject. It's titled Exclusion and Embrace, if you want to read it later. Volf, as a Croatian, has lived through some of the most horrific things in, in the history of Croatia, uh, Croatian, the, the country. Uh, over the past 50 years, multiple wars, multiple um, conflicts. He's seen the suffering and evil of this world. And in his book, he argues that Jesus accomplished what we could not when he suffered and died on the cross. And in that act of suffering, Jesus replaced the principle of retaliation and retribution in our lives with the principle of peace. He's not just saying just get over it or just get past the suffering. He deals with justice in the suffering of Christ. And hear what he says in his book about his, his theory that Christ's death replaces uh, that, that need for retribution. He says, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. That's us. To the people, to the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Now imagine this is the topic of your lecture, Christian attitude toward violence. And your thesis is, we should not retaliate since God is perfect non-coercive love. Well, soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of 
thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it would invariably die. As one watches it die, one would do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. His words are pointed, but they reflect the truth about justice in our suffering. We need full and complete justice. We need to be avenged all the wrong that has been done to us, but most of all, we need a savior who can take the fullness of God's judgment that was meant for you and me and pay it all. Jesus, therefore, had to be made like his brothers in every respect to make propitiation full and final payment for our sins. Finally, and we'll close with this, Jesus suffered so that in his suffering, he can comfort us. Verse 18 says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You know, we haven't really talked very much yet about this temptation, the temptation that comes in the midst of suffering. But here at the end of the chapter, there's a simple and yet profound way Jesus deals with our temptation. In the midst of suffering, it's hard. It's hard to pay attention and not neglect, neglect the salvation. It's hard to feel the sanctification that draws us closer to God. It's hard to trust that God will really right every wrong. But you are not alone. He is here with you. It doesn't say that Jesus went through the sufferings of temptation so he could know what it was like for us or that he could give us a list of things to try when we're feeling down. No, he has gone through the suffering so that he is able to help you. John Newton, slave trader turned pastor, author of Amazing Grace, also wrote many letter, letters in his ministry as a pastor. I've got a nice book of them and Catherine and I try to read one of them every night because they're so pastoral, so caring. And this is what he writes to a fellow pastor concerning the care and encouragement that Jesus gives us in our suffering. One end why our Lord was tempted was for the encouragement of his poor followers, that they might know him to be a high priest suited for them, having had a fellow feeling in their distresses. For the like reason, he appoints his ministers to be sorely exercised, both from without and within, that they may sympathize with their flock and know in their own hearts the deceitfulness of sin, the infirmities of the flesh, and the way in which the Lord supports and bears with all that trust in him. Therefore, do not be discouraged. Usefulness and trials, comforts and crosses, Strength and exercise go together. But remember, he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. When you get to heaven, you will not complain of the way by which the Lord brought you. He is indeed our high priest, suited and fitted 
just for us. He is the exalted God come to us, made like us in our sufferings so that he can walk alongside the dark struggles of this life with you, with you. And just as he, after a little while, was exalted to the highest heavens and is now seated on the throne, so you and I, after a little while, will taste life, glorious, unimaginable, eternal life. And we will no longer complain of the way by which the Lord has brought us. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, our dear, great, glorious Savior, Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you, for we are weak, we are poor. We are broken in our sufferings. God, you have come in a magnificent way, sending Christ our Savior, Jesus, to be the God-man, the exalted one who came and suffered, who tasted the bitterness and the sting of death so that we will never have to. In light of that, Father, help us to carry on. Help us to be strong in the word that you have given us, that you are with us, that you will never forsake us. You are our helper. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.